Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As we came up towards here from the open lock, we passed a particularly significant area of blue-green algae. A dead swan was lying in one of those pools, and the stench here is unbelievable. It's like, it's like the smell of a, of a very unclean toilet. It's filthy, it's horrible. And this is the lock from which we draw our drinking water. 40% of Northern Ireland's population depends on Loch Ness for its drinking water. But large parts of the loch are covered in a putrid, toxic sludge. The stench from this was vomitous. There was a gas being given off by this cyanobacteria. The crucial thing about it is that it doesn't just take oxygen out of the water, but it puts toxins back into the water. And these toxins are really deadly. The blue-green algae bloom is affecting an area now so fast it can clearly be seen from space. Shoreline of the loch was like gloss paint, thick green gloss paint lapping up against the beach at Ballyronan Marina. There was so much of this sludge that it was like porridge. Um, it was really thick, congealed and stretching for 40, 50 yards out from the shoreline. Some of those who know Loch Ness best say it's down. I've actually been working on the loch and up and down this canal and I actually just live over, not that far from here where we are, and I've never ever seen the lock on the canal this bad. Really, the amount of blue-green algae, which is a really dangerous algae, I have never seen that before. How has this happened? Who's responsible for the lock? Can it be fixed, or is it too late? Sam McBride has been covering this story for the Belfast Telegraph, and he joins me now in the studio. Sam, you're very welcome to the Bell Tale. Thank you. You've been out on Loch Ness. Now, we won't be able to see or smell anything on a podcast. So can I ask you to describe your experience on the Loch? It was really a biblical scene. That was the word that immediately came to mind. It, it really didn't seem quite real. The shoreline of the loch was like gloss paint, thick green gloss paint lapping up against the beach at Ballyronan Marina. It was much worse at Cranfield Point, just moving down the loch a little bit towards Antrim Town. And there someone had thrown a can, a beer can, into the water but it didn't sink because there was no water. And this was several feet out from the shore where a fishing boat was moored, where there was a slipway, so a fairly deep stretch of water. And it, ha- it had not sunk because there was so much of this sludge that it was like porridge. Um, it was really thick, congealed and stretching for, oh, I don't know, 40, 50 yards out from the shoreline in a, in a, in a section of the lock that was more enclosed. So it wasn't getting um, even the little bit of, of it 
waves lapping um, at the beach further around from there. And the stench from this was vomitous. There was a gas being given off by this cyanobacteria, this thing that's known commonly as blue-green algae, but it's not actually algae. That actually makes it sound much more benign than it actually is. It's a, it's a very dangerous bacteria. And, I mean, it was not somewhere that I or my photographer wanted to spend very long. We did what we had to do and we cut out as quickly as we could. It was horrible, horrible. So this isn't a plant which grows naturally. I mean, I've seen, and I like your description of the porridge, it's, that's what it's like. I've seen it. You know, some people might be saying, well, is, it, is, it, is, is this algae not a natural thing? And that's what that's what I would have thought. Look, I've got a pond at home and there's duckweed grows in it and there's algae of sorts. And it's a bit of a nuisance, but it's ultimately pretty harmless. This is fundamentally different. It's not a plant. It doesn't have roots. It is a bacteria. It's a bacteria which photosynthesizes and that's why it is green. That's why the sunlight impacts on it. So it's a slightly unusual um, form of life. But the crucial thing about it is that it doesn't just take oxygen out of the water, but it puts toxins back into the water. And these toxins are really deadly. They are so deadly that they can kill mammals as big as horses, as big as cows, um, as big as deer. We know that at the lock. Um, I saw it with my own eyes that they have killed swans. There was a swan lying in the midst of one of these pools of blue-green algae and they have they have a devastating impact on the entire lock ecosystem. So there's a deadly bacteria, it's poisoning the lock. So naturally don't drink the water, don't swim in the water, don't let your pets in the water, but of course we are drinking the water because 40% of us are depending on it. How does that make sense? Well, it's it's complicated. Uh, Loch, Loch Ness is one of the major sources of drinking water in Northern Ireland. We were out on a boat in Loch Ness. We spent a day out on the loch and in, in around the shore of the loch. And we, we managed with the help of a fisherman to find one of the three abstraction points where NI water takes its water out of the loch. It's raw water. And I looked down into the water right at that point and it's filthy. It's green. It's polluted with this stuff. And the really striking thing about this bacteria is that you might think it sort of congregates at the shoreline. That's really bad. But you know what? You get away out in this thing. It's 19 miles from north to south. It's an enormous inland sea. And it's much clearer when you get out there. You you, 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 would, you would think that quite logically. And the scary thing was that once we got out in the boat, got going quite fast, the wake of the boat in many places was pure green, way out from shore, a mile, two miles offshore. So that's where our water is coming from. What NI Water say is that they treat this water, obviously. It goes through many processes. It is filtered. It's put through charcoal. There's aluminium added to it in some cases. There's acid added to it. There's ozone added to it. It's chlorinated. They say that all of that ultimately nullifies these toxins. It's totally safe to drink. They say that they've increased their testing of this. But when you stand there and you look at where the water's coming from, it makes you pause and think, how bad can this get before they no longer can purify it to an extent that we can drink it? We know that in other parts of the world, in in parts of the US, in parts of China, they've actually stopped taking water for drinking out of lakes which are polluted with this same bacteria. I think we need to be aware that there is at least the possibility this gets to a stage where that is no longer possible. And that's how serious this is. And yet 
many people in Northern Ireland, I think, have been pretty unaware of this. They haven't seen it. They haven't um, been driving past and looking into this um, very heavily polluted lock. And they've been drinking the water as normal and never thinking that this is the stretch of water, this filthy stretch of water that it's coming from. So, Sam, who or what is causing this? The simple answer to that is that we are causing this. The public are causing this. There are four main causes here. The first two are farms and sewage. So the sewage obviously comes from us, the public. Uh, that contributes something like just, just over 30% of the problem. Just over 60% of the problem comes from farms. So that's that's the single biggest issue. And it's nutrient runoff from land. So it's slurry that's being spread on fields. It's then being washed into shucks, wash, washed into um, streams, washed into um, all sorts of water courses that ultimately find their way into Loch Ney. Loch Ney is the drainage location for about 40% of Northern Ireland. In fact, parts of it um, drain from as far away as Monaghan. And so this is a massive catchment area. There are some very intensive agriculture um, projects in those areas, large chicken farms, pig farms. Um, there are places which are producing enormous quantities of excrement. And in some cases, there's, there's either no land for that to be spread upon or it's being spread in land where it's being spread too thickly or the rain is coming and it's being washed in. Ultimately, it ends up in Loch Ney. That feeds this bacteria. It feasts on this nutrient overload. And without that, it would not be the problem that it is. The other two problems are zebra mussels. That's an invasive species that has come from Russia. Uh, it's out of control now. There are probably billions of those in the loch. There's no realistic prospect of getting rid of those. And they they purify the water, which might sound like a good thing, but it's a bad thing here because what it does is allow more light um, down to a greater depth in the lock. That then um, amplifies the growth of this bacteria because it's it's influenced not just by nutrients but by sunlight. So that's fueling it as well. And then the final thing is climate change. So the lock water has risen by one degree in temperature since the 1990s. That doesn't sound like much, but it's a phenomenally fast increase in the temperature of the lock. And that is disrupting what's happening here. We're getting a very hot early summer, late spring, as we had this year. That's setting the lock on a path to exponential growth of these bacteria. And then you're getting a very wet summer where the the agricultural nutrients are being washed down into the lock. Um, and then now we're getting this sort of Indian summer into September, hot, dry, calm weather. And it's very unlike what the lock has typically experienced in Northern Ireland. I find it very interesting that you say 30% of this problem is caused by sewage. So we're putting our sewage into the same lock, which we take our... It's extraordinary, uh, isn't it? ...our drinking water out of. Yeah, and I understand it is purified, but... Well, some of it isn't purified. Well, <laughs> sorry, I, I'm, I don't, I don't mean to put you off your uh, drinking water, but one, one of the problems here, I think, is that NI Water say that what they do to the water makes it safe. I've no reason to disbelieve that. No reason to believe they're, they're lying to us, they're misleading us, or anything like that. But there is a significant conflict of interest here for NI Water because they're also the people who are pumping in. Treated sewage and raw sewage. The investigative journalist Tommy Green a couple of years ago calculated using some of the government data that the catchment area for Loch Ney have about 200,000 tonnes of sewage put into them by NI Water every year. So NI Water has a vested interest in saying, that's okay, that's fine, we can keep doing this and it's safe. And on the other hand, they have a vested interest in saying, it's all fine, we can treat this. And I think where that starts to break down is here. 
NI water don't put raw sewage or sewage of any description into the water right beside where they take water out. And if we knew they were doing that, we wouldn't want to drink that water, whatever they said the process was. But what they say is that it's okay to do it a little bit further away, even though it's this one big um, body of water, even though we know what it's doing to these bacteria, etc. So there's a very disturbing picture here, um, even if what NI Water is saying right now about the water being safe to drink is true. What are the farmers saying? Obviously the farmers, and we're talking, you know, large poultry farms you've mentioned, uh, artificial fertilizers, slurry. Uh, this, I mean, this goes on. Fields are treated from basically the mouth where the band begins, uh, and every river leading into the loch. It is perhaps unrealistic to expect less fertilizer and less slurry to be put on fields. But what are farmers saying about this? So there's there's a range of opinion from farmers. There are farmers who are very alive to this and who are trying to change how they farm. There are, there are some subsidies from government to do that. So for instance, government is paying farmers now to have these riparian strips along the edge of watercourses. So basically fence the field off maybe a few feet back from where there's a, maybe a very small watercourse, maybe it's a big river, and plant trees there. Let the grass grow wild there and it will absorb more of the nutrients before they make it into the water. So there's some common sense being shown here by lots of farmers, by um, by uh, government, um, and that is that is hopefully going to improve this to some extent. But the issue here isn't necessarily farming per se. The issue is the type of farming that we've been moving towards over recent years. Farming has been going on for, what, thousands of years in this part of Ireland. It's nothing new. Um, animals being in fields, animals um, dunging in those fields that ultimately, in some cases, ending up and water courses has been happening. It hasn't been this sort of catastrophic problem. The difficulty here is that Stormont has been encouraging farms to become more and more industrialised. So much less of that old type of farming where animals were out in fields and moving them into big barns. So for instance, having 20, 50,000 um, chickens cooped up in a, in a very large barn, maybe having 10 of those barns side by side or five of those barns side by side on a very small portion of land. We call it factory farming. Factory farming, essentially. Very industrialised farming. And the problem with that is that it develops enormous quantities of excrement, of dung, that have to be dealt with. And we don't uh, really... And it's dealt with all at the same time. It's not a plop here, it's a very plop concentrated. there. Yes. It's very concentrated and there isn't necessarily the land to deal with it on because what, what we have done is make food much cheaper. So that's good for us as consumers if that's what we want. But it has meant that on the same portion of land, the same acreage of Northern Ireland, we haven't been able to make Northern Ireland any bigger, obviously, but we've massively increased the, the agricultural output from that. And that's not an accident. Stormont did that very deliberately. It was called going for growth. It was their central agricultural strategy. Michelle O'Neill backed it, Edwin Putz backed it, all the executive parties backed it. They said this would be great, it would make jobs, it would make us better. Actually, what Michelle O'Neill, when she was agriculture minister, said was it would help the environment. Well, it hasn't helped the environment. It's been catastrophic for the environment and we're now starting to pay for that. Sam, you used the word catastrophic twice there and I think there might be people listening to this and they're saying, 
and the, this is what they say because they always say this when we when we're talking about environmental things like the loch is dying there's catastrophic they always say well here the environmentalists are here the journalists they're hyping things up they're making things bigger than they are look in a few weeks this this bacterial die off the loch will recover everybody calm down there's no big problem here so i was shocked when I went onto the lock because I didn't expect to see this. I didn't go there thinking it was going to be this bad. I'd been contacted by the Loch Ness Partnership, a charity that tries to raise awareness of this, tries to help the help the lock recover from some of these problems. And I went out open-minded, trying to see what what I would see. And I was stunned by how bad it is. If anybody disbelieves what we're talking about here, go onto the Belfast Telegraph website. There is a video which my um, colleague Aidan Roberts shot of our time out in the lock, beside the lock. You can see it with your own eyes. You'll not be able to smell it from that video. But if you don't believe me, go down to Cranfield Point, smell it for yourself. You will regret it, but at least you'll know what it's like. I think when, when, when you look at this, the, the lock is an ecosystem. So it's not simply a big body of water and that's it. It has all sorts of plants, animals, insects, the water itself, and all of these things impact on each other. They're all interconnected. And when you damage one part of that ecosystem, you damage lots of other areas. And that's what we're starting to see here. At the bottom of the food chain in Loch Ness is the Loch Ness fly. This is a midge which is pretty notorious around the loch. This is central to the life of birds, of fish, and central to the life of the loch. Now that the water near the shoreline has been, in many cases, just completely replaced, or at least mostly replaced, by this horrible thick green sludge, this fly has almost vanished. People say they basically haven't seen it this year at all. There were billions of these things. I mean, they were swarms of, you know, of, 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 of things that really darkened the sky in places and they've almost gone. And what the eel fishermen say to me, I talked to one eel fisherman who's been fishing for eels for more than half a century. He said that the eels used to congregate in certain areas in the loch. Now the eels are scattered all over the loch. Um, he said that when they do catch eels, they're skinny, they're emaciated, they often don't want to take the bait that they offer to them. So the loch isn't going to empty of water anytime soon. It's not going to die in that sense. It will still be there but it will not be the loch as we have known it. That loch is dying. Well, I've eaten Loch Ness eels, I have to say. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to ask you whether you've eaten them or not. I I'll enjoy- tell you I haven't, but not not to my taste. I enjoyed the experience. They, they do leave a certain grease everywhere around your mouth and you know, and your hands. You kind of need to scrape it off. But it certainly is a very particular taste. All you need to do is stick them on the pan. Uh, but could I... Or should I eat a Loch Ness eel today? Well, I'll I'll not comment on my view of the taste of various fish, but on the safety of this, there is a pretty confusing picture from government bodies. The Public Health Agency are advising the public that if you catch a fish in Loch Ness recreationally, if you're a fisherman out with a line, you catch a trout or whatever it might be, you shouldn't eat that. If there's blue-green algae, don't touch it, leave it, do not eat it, don't put it in your mouth. But they also say that if that same fish is caught commercially by a boat and somebody sells it to you, it might be okay. Now, when I saw that advice, I was pretty baffled and I thought, if it's the same fish, 
how on earth could it be unsafe based on who catches it? So I went to as many bodies as I possibly could. I went to the Food Standards Agency. They said basically the same thing, that don't be eating it if it's caught recreationally, but if it's caught commercially, there's a responsibility on the commercial fishery to make sure it's safe and it's up to them. It should be safe. So I went to the um, to the fishery in Toombridge and I asked them, can you guarantee me that these fish are safe? And can you tell me that you're testing these fish for toxins? They didn't tell me that they could say confidently these fish were, were safe. They couldn't tell me that they were testing them for toxins. What they did say was that they were working with Mid-Ulster Council, their local council, and with the public health authorities to do what they were meant to do. So I wasn't entirely satisfied from that. I went to Mid-Ulster Council. They told me they're not testing for toxins. Uh, they gave me basically what the public health agency had said, said they're, they're very reliant on them. So there's a bit of circular reasoning here. I went to Stormont's Department of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs. They're responsible for fisheries policy in Northern Ireland. They said they rely on the public health agency, on the food standards agency. So lots of these people are essentially relying on each other. But the short answer to this is nobody in government is testing these fish for toxins. Now, that's extraordinary. Worse than that, it seems that nobody in government is even taking samples of these fish to, at some future point, test them for toxins to work out in the summer of 2023 when there was this dreadful outbreak. How bad did it get? And that's pretty concerning, I think, just based on common sense. I mean, that's, that is extraordinary. I, mean, I, don't, I have many questions coming from that. I mean, and it's up to people themselves, obviously. You know, who is responsible, therefore, for this loch? I mean, it doesn't, extraordinarily, it doesn't fall under Waterways Ireland. Extraordinarily, again, it's the the, the, the base of the loch, the, 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 the bottom of the loch, is owned by Lord Shaftesbury, uh, dating back from plantation times. Uh, so, so, I mean, I suppose who could do something if we can do something, are the, do the environmentalists say, this is what we have to do? Well, then who does it? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question. And it's something I wasn't really aware of uh, until I went last week. I knew there was this issue about the ownership of the bed of the lock um, with Lord Shaftesbury which frankly seems like a pretty bizarre arrangement where he owns the bed of the lock, he owns the banks of the lock, he doesn't own the water in the lock, he can't control what is flushed into the lock. So he has got um, some responsibility, obviously, he owns the mud, which is contaminated on the floor of the lock. I'm not quite sure what anybody could do about that in in an area of, um, you know, seven million swimming pools, an area that's the size of Malta, um, four times the size of Paris. I mean, it's a vast expanse of water, the problem is what's getting into the lock. And once it's there, unfortunately, it's basically, I think, too late for the most part. Where he can influence this is that there is sand dredging that takes place out of out of a out of quite a small portion of Loch Ness, but he makes money out of that. Um, I think several hundred thousand pounds a year is paid to him um, by, the, by the people who do that. The problem with that is that it stirs up the base of the lock. It releases a lot of these nutrients that are in the mud. And I noticed that when, when we were out in the boat and we passed one of these sand dredgers where it basically sucks up the water from the bed of the lock, it filters it and then pours out the side of the sand barge, this sort of filthy water that's full of mud, that's got lots of nutrients in it. I noticed that in that area, there was a particularly thick green sludge in that area. Now, there were lots of areas of the lock that had that, most of them, frankly, but there were bits that were worse than others. And that did seem to be a particularly bad area. But he is a bit of a convenient whipping boy here, Lord Shaftesbury. He's this 
out of touch English aristocrat, this absentee landlord, people say that's that's how this is characterised with with a degree of credibility, because frankly, that is, I think, largely it presses a lot of buttons for a lot of people. Of course it does. There's politics tied up in this. There is there is the sense of somebody who is a bit of a bit of a feckless landlord who doesn't care about this, who's who's asset stripping the lock, but isn't putting anything back in. But when I talk to people around the lock, some of them were, to my surprise, actually saying that they don't think he's the main problem here. He's a pretty benign sort of person, they say. Jerry Darby, for instance, the manager of the Lochney Partnership, who's who's been in that role for something like 20 years, very knowledgeable. He's not happy with what's happening. He said, look, Lord Shaftesbury is willing to sell this tomorrow. He offered it to Stormont something like 15 years ago for a fairly small price. I think it was about £6 million, which is a lot of money to you or me. But in terms of government spending for something of this size is really a a, a pretty paltry sum. Stormont didn't want to buy it. Um, he's still willing to sell it. Uh, and actually, the Lochney Partnership now have got money from the, from the lottery fund to look at um, doing some research into what would be a fair price for it. What would the ownership model be? Should they give it to Stormont? Should they have some other sort of form of ownership for it? And one, one, one of the surprising things that Jerry Darby said to me was that he places the blame for some of this on the Good Friday Agreement. And when he said that, I was you know, baffled. And I said, the Good Friday Agreement? I mean, what on earth has that got to do with Loch Ness? And he said, back in 1998, there were all these arguments about cross-border bodies, very politically charged. David Trimble, Seamus Mallon, the British and Irish governments in, in very, um, very keenly contested arguments. How many cross-border bodies should there be? Which ones should they be? What should their remit be? One of those bodies was Waterways Ireland. And it was to look after all the inland navigable waterways on the island of Ireland. It was one of the least controversial ones. It was a bit of a common sense one. If you've got something like um, like Loch Erne, where it straddles the border, where there's a waterway crossing um, maybe several times across the border, of course it makes sense to manage that, where people are trying to be responsible on both sides of the border there. But what Jerry Darby says is that the one element of navigable waterways in Ireland that wasn't put under Waterways Ireland is the biggest, is Loch Ney. And that means that it loses out. There's no one in charge of it. And if everybody's in charge of little bits of it, it does mean that nobody is really responsible for it. So you've got councils, you've got Stormont, you've got um, you've got various bodies that are interacting with it, like NI Water, flushing sewage in, taking water out. But nobody ultimately can stand up and say, I'm going to bang the table and decide what happens here because nobody is in charge. Final question. And it's quite a theoretical question. Could a functioning Stormont help this situation? Well, there are two, there are two answers to that. Theoretically, Stormont could do a lot of stuff that in reality it didn't do. So I think we should be sceptical about a Stormont which made this problem worse, uh, being the vehicle for making it better. But that's not to be cynical about it. Maybe politicians will look at this. Maybe civil servants will look at this and say, you know what, we have learned the error of our ways. We're going to we're going to change. When I talked to Jerry Darby at the Lochney Partnership, he said that he can't even get the most senior civil servants in Stormont to sit down with him. Um, does that point to people who at this point realise how bad it is? I'm not sure. But theoretically, 
Stormont, yes, could do an awful lot about this. Stormont could could toughen the penalties for pollution. If you look at what happens to water companies in England, which, which are obviously privately owned, and that's a separate problem in itself. But when you look at what happens to those companies, when they are guilty of serious pollution, pouring sewage into waterways when they're not supposed to, they get fined millions of pounds in some cases. NI Water, my colleague Garrett Hargan recently reported in the Belfast Telegraph, has pumped something like 70 million tonnes of sewage into watercourses or the sea in Northern Ireland over the last decade. It's been fined a total of £170,000. So 70 million tonnes, £170,000 for a, you know, a body which has a massive multi-million pound budget. That's not really much of a deterrent. Now, the reason for those low level of fines is that the courts and Stormont essentially says it's a public body. It doesn't have the money to build proper sewage infrastructure. And so therefore... You're fining yourself, really. We'd be fining ourselves. It wouldn't actually be in the public interest. So it's it's a very messy problem to fix. But you could find other people who are responsible here. Farmers, for instance, have had the fines against them dropped over recent times by Stormont. Edwin Putz, when he was minister, actually made it easier, essentially, certainly less punishing for farmers to pollute into these waterways. You could reverse that. Um, you could get tough on, on people who are as, as industrial polluters. Part of the problem here, you could put more money if you were Stormont into the sewage infrastructure. That will probably... Uh, not be pain-free for us as the public. That will mean us being asked for more money. That might be through water charges, very controversial. Um, That might be through increased rates. It might be through money coming from other parts of public spending. But ultimately, this is going to cost a lot of money to fix. And I think that's a final lesson for everybody here. Some of these problems develop silently. We don't see them. So going for growth made a lot of jobs. It made food cheaper for some people in Northern Ireland. It was very, very good for some people. They made a lot of money out of it. But other people are ultimately going to have to pay for that. And on that note, Sam McBride, Northern Ireland editor of the Belfast Telegraph. Thanks very much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.